and it made me understand that, or at least made me think that I never fit in anywhere because of what happened to me. And then I realized that everyone I was attracted to, you included with the story with you and, and your family, like everyone that became somebody that I became valued for in their lives and them in mine, they never let what happened to them that was adversity get the best of them. They were not a victim. They were not a martyr. They may not have used it like you have with this incredible podcast as a pedestal to support others, but they decided that their lives were more rich when they fulfilled others' lives first. And those people are the connectors in my life, the community builders, all of my best friends, all of my community. And it came from finding other people who simply didn't have their own community till they built one. Welcome to episode 72 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features my friend David Homan, a super connector who believes deeply in the power of trust and trusted relationships. David has built Orchestrated Connecting, a community of over 1,200 impact-focused givers and makes thousands of intros each year that result in tangible, effective, and inspiring changes in people, businesses, impact, and opportunity. David is also a prolific, classically trained musician and composer, a former longtime nonprofit executive, a dedicated dad, and much more. David and I discuss his childhood in Gainesville, Florida, how he reached his destined home of New York, his music and nonprofit careers, and his more recent startup endeavor, and how orchestrated connecting is changing the world. His reach and knowledge base spans wealth, influence, and dozens of industries, yet he manages it all very humbly and transparently. I'm really excited to share his perspective with you. Here is David Homan on People Are the Answer. David, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and you know, lately my recent recordings have been with people that I really care about and I'm close to. And that was sort of the impetus for starting this podcast is to share amazing people in my network that are doing incredible things and, you know, kind of sharing their story with the world. So you were certainly someone that came to mind early. So apologies that it's taken so long to get you on. You know, um, I live my life by one of my favorite quotes from the play zoo story by Edward Albee, which is sometimes you have to go a long distance out of one's way to come back a short distance correctly. So we were meant to talk today while my parents are like driving into New York trying to get to a Broadway show in time. And I'm nervous my dad won't be able to see Sweeney Todd. So I'm just going to focus on you and hope they make it because there's nothing else I can do. Yeah, good luck to them. Glad to be able to take your attention off of that for now. Uh, it'd be great if you could start off by telling our listeners who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. Sure. So my name is David Homan. I am based in Jersey City, New Jersey, right outside New York. And my entire world is connectivity. I run a private community called Orchestrated Connecting and an impact advisory forum called Orchestrated Opportunities. Love it very much. And certainly your work resonates with me. I've been fortunate enough to be engaged in the community and um, we'll certainly dig in further on that. But I think some of this answer sort of has already started to pop up. But in life in general, what would you say motivates you? My religion is people. 
I went to Emory um, between my junior and senior year of high school as the only Jew in the Chandler School of Theology for a program called YTI. And the major focus was on understanding religion. I was not religious. But after that year, they started to focus only on Christianity in terms of um, understanding the diversity of religion. And something just struck me in that as just the opposite of my value system. Now it's an incredible community. A lot of great work comes out of it. A lot of friends have come out of it from that year I went or others. But I realized that my religion was people. I care about how people connect. I care about why they connect. And I hate when two people have been sitting in my world and I've not connected them when they could serve each other's purposes and amplify their passions. And so that's right. Like people are the answer for you. Like community is the answer for me. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that. And, you know, since I've known you, which I'm not, not sure how many years it's been, it's been, it's been quite a while now since we first met. Well, we, we first met exactly the day before David Resnick and Dana's wedding. So we can trace back to their anniversary and we can just ping them after the show and put it in the credits. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, I think it's been over a decade and you know, certainly as I, I've gotten to know you, I've seen um, just all the good that you do and all the, the goodness that you bring to others and that you create with your connections. You know, what sort of drove you in that direction? Was there something in your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back or, or made you want to go down that path? So, you know, the quick answer would be I had great parents. My parents were generous. My dad, you know, was a theater director giving back to his community and my mom ran an after school arts organization. But in the end, as, I, as I've really dug into why, it all comes back to childhood trauma. And in a book I'm writing on orchestrated connecting, I've interviewed 50 connectors now about this with a colleague. Every single one cited in some way adversity they overcame as youth as the reason they're a giver. So for me, I was, I was an all-star pitcher in fifth grade. I was pitching a game. All of a sudden, things went black. I don't even know where I threw the ball. I got off the field, and 11 months later, after, you know, my mom hates when we refer to it as the year I nearly died, um, after being bedridden, hospitalized, I hate giving blood because of the number of tests I had, I had to rebuild my entire social life and my life. It created body image issues. It created social issues. I was, you know, a really athletic, creative kid who could play piano and act and all of this. Then I was the shy, fat kid who didn't know how to talk to people. And I, and I went through my middle school years into my high school years. One thinking I was out of shape while I could run a seven-minute mile, which is impossible to be out of shape when you can do that. And then two, like I never fit into any community and I never felt like any of the groups, the cool kids, the dorks, the theater, the sports, like I was friends with everyone in every community. I never had my own. And it goes back to that moment in childhood where the ways that I was uh, segmented in, in soccer, in baseball, in piano, in acting all blew up. Well, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that story. It sounds like quite the pivotal moment, scary times as well. It was scary at the time for sure. Um, when I think back to it, it made me grow up fast and it made me understand that 
or at least made me think that I never fit in anywhere because of what happened to me. And then I realized that everyone I was attracted to, you included with the story with you and, and your family, like everyone that became somebody that I became valued for in their lives and them in mine, they never let what happened to them that was adversity get the best of them. They were not a victim. They were not a martyr. They may not have used it like you have with this incredible podcast as a pedestal to support others, but they decided that their lives were more rich when they fulfilled others' lives first. And those people are the connectors in my life, the community builders, all of my best friends, all of my community. And it came from finding other people who simply didn't have their own community till they built one. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. And, um, you know, you mentioned, we've talked about your childhood a little bit. Where was that? Where did you grow up and, and what was it like there? So I grew up in a town, you know, well, cause your mom, Gainesville, Florida. My dad's been a professor at the university of Florida since 1972. So I grew up in a small town that would blossom by 50 to 70,000 people for nine months a year. Um, as a professor's kid with a mom born in New York, but raised South Beach and a dad who grew up street tough in South Philly, but got strong armed into Princeton and then Harvard. And so I grew up in an environment, right? Like, you know, it's, it's the deep South, but it's a pocket and it's, it's a bubble where you have both similar to Charleston, just much smaller. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, uh, it must be an interesting place to grow up. I mean, given how big UF is, it, it really, from my perspective, seems like a college town. And I mean, even for me going to school in Boston, where there are tons of schools in the area, those months where school is not in session are very different from the ones where they are. Entirely. And then you add to that, you know, the evolution of what's happened in the South and in Florida in particular. Like it used to be there, like, like where's Gainesville? I would be like, it's Gatorade. And then Tom Petty. And then when Obama was president, it was where the preacher who wanted to burn the Quran lived. And then Tim Tebow. And since then, you know, uh, it's a town that has those things as an association. It's a lovely town. Just somewhere I would, after being exposed to New York and living here for so long, um, I found my real home. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of that, you know, you didn't go to University of Florida. You went to, to Bard College. What took you there? You know, I've made a few choices in my life that seem very risky. Bard was one. I wanted to be a legacy kid getting into Princeton where my dad went. I didn't get in. I got into a bunch of other schools and I was going to go to Emory because of that theology program I mentioned. And then Bard said, we have this thing called tuition exchange. You can shave like 80% off of your tuition if you want to come here. I never visited. I just said, oh, Hudson Valley. I've heard it's gorgeous. A friend of mine from a March of Dimes group I'm in is going to go named Tracy. Like, I'm going to go. Maybe I'll end up in New York. And I took that chance. My college roommate, Josh, was from Fort Lee, New Jersey, right across the GW, and got to New York. Um, loved it. Loved the Hudson Valley. And I've now been, you know, tri-state area for more than half my life. Awesome. It's, uh, I love when people sort of take that chance, you know, without really knowing a lot. I think it's a, it's a fun thing to go into. Um, and it's obviously could be a little scary at times too, but, uh, I think that that sort of served you well going forward because you had this good experience taking this risk and it, it helped you, I think probably 
maintain some of that going forward. It did. And, you know, the thing about, you know, large college in a small town is I didn't want to be 11 years old in the shadow of my, especially my father. It took us some time to like work that through because like I was his 11 year old little Davy, which no one calls me Davy, but he still calls me Davy. Um, I needed to have my own autonomy and agency. And some I thought going the furthest away was really going to make that happen. And it actually brought us a lot closer because then my journey of like leaving home for college and finding myself in it and my lane was more similar to how he found himself out, out of his family and then back in. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, you talked about wanting to end up in New York. Uh, you got your master's at, at NYU. Um, you know, what led you to that choice? You know, partly desperation, to be honest. I thought, I don't know how to make it in New York. If I can get into grad school, that'll be a reason to go down. And, you know, I was a white male composer in a music department, in a the theater department, but particularly music, because I went to NYU for music where, you know, rightly so, the women in particular were being championed. So I didn't get any help. And I took a summer course at NYU with this incredible man who's since passed named Dinu Getzo, famous Romanian composer. And he just loved me. And he loved me because of the reason most people love me in life, which is that I can organize things really well with no stress in advance and then still have time to get leave for dinner. And so he asked me to sort of run part of his department became a work-study project, got me down, and that got me into the city where I literally used to walk because I was afraid of the subway. And that's where I learned I have a spatially photographic memory. So now if somebody says to me, like, what train do I get on to go up from Union Square to Grand Central for X? Like, I can tell you which train to get on to get off of the stairs than where to get the best bagel or coffee that way. And so it became a city that I really mastered after having no understanding of what it was going to be when I started grad school here about 23 years ago now. Wow. So yeah, it, it sounds like you've really become, you know, integrated into the city. It's become a, a big part of your life. I love it for the food. I really love it for the people and the opportunity and the fact that, you know, and I used to run an arts charity that was in multiple cities. So I studied how so many other cities work in terms of power, philanthropy, influence and the rest. And I just love New York because it's a great equalizer. It's a hard city, but you can meet anyone at any point in any circumstance and people are open. They're not just that street tough, like I'm gonna rob you or you know, like the rest that people fear. Like there's an openness for the power of the city that I just thrive in. It takes a little bit to get used to uh, when you've left it, but, it, but it's an incredible city that way. And I, I've really, I've loved that I've made it my home and my family's home as well. Yeah, no, that really is great. And I certainly understand that vibrance that it offers and why the people that love it, love it. For, for me, it is very stressful to be there and exhausting to get around. Uh, but I certainly have felt some of those dynamics there as well. And just anything available anytime, you know, whether it's a type of person or community or restaurant, whatever it may be, certainly is appealing in uh, that respect. Well, I'll tell you, it used to be you had to live in New York to really maximize New York. One of the side benefits, so to speak, of COVID is now you can come here every couple of weeks or every couple of months and almost have it be like you're living here because people's engagements are much more, uh, they're much more virtual. 
when you meet somebody in person, it's personal. And there's tons of events all the time. So, you know, you can come in just for Climate Week or Tribeca Film Festival and get the same experience for meetings in New York either of those months as I would have that month for how I'm engaging. COVID really changed the way that that dynamic works, which makes it a lot less stressful to think about needing to be in fully to maximize. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, COVID obviously is... COVID obviously has been very tough in general for the world society, but certainly there's been some positives we can take away and, and glad to hear that that's one of them. For sure. So you got your master's in music. Um, you know, what, let's talk about your career path a little bit. I mean, obviously you're spending a lot of time in music and then you went into to fundraising. How did that all come about? So I can trace back to two individuals the entire success I've had in my life for what people would call a success. Um, but it all boils down to one woman who was my adopted Jewish grandmother growing up in Florida, whose name was Doris Barton. Um, Doris was one of those trailblazing women who did everything women weren't supposed to do in every decade women weren't supposed to do it. And I would go as a little kid, especially when I started writing music, which coincidentally happened right in the year I quote died. That's when I became an improviser than composer. Not an accident. I got sick. I quit piano. Nirvana came out with Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I thought, this is pretty cool. I want to play it on piano. My teacher, David Cook, taught me it. And then I had a 20-minute version a couple weeks later. So I, I would play piano for Doris. And when I got down to NYU, she said, uh, from, from Bard, she said, you know, there's this woman. Her name is Abby Belkin. Um, she lives, you know, in Upper West Side, like go over for a Shabbat dinner with her. I had never at that point done a Shabbat dinner because I grew up as Jewish in the South where everyone was Christian. And I went to her Shabbat dinner. Uh, she became my other adopted grandmother. And um, the second Shabbat I went to, famous violinist Isaac Stern, one of the greatest of the greats, his widow Vera was there. She loved me at the time. She asked me to come down to interview for the charity that she ran. And three weeks later, I was starting to run a gala at Carnegie Hall. And my career started to develop in arts management and events and development and the rest. And I learned pretty quick. No one knows a living classical composer. I don't know if anyone's listening to this who's ever met one, but otherwise, like most people know me. Like, that's it. And so if that's, if that's what it is, and then I was in the field funding it with this charity, there's no path. It's not a hobby. I've had works performed around the world um, at Carnegie Hall, Ballets at the Joyce. I have many albums to my name that you can say, hey, Alexa, play the music of David Homan, which is what my nine-year-old loves to tell people to do. And no one, no one listens. It's not something people consume, or if they consume it, they consume it privately. And so... I realized that I wanted to be in the arts so I could be part of the conversation. I didn't know if I'd ever be the conversation in the arts, but I wanted to have a career that was representative of being able to produce, being able to share my passions and elevate others' voices as I did it. In, in this first major role that you mentioned, is that what sort of gave you this realization? Yeah, I, I had a lot of imposter syndrome of being an executive at 26 years old of a multi-million dollar foundation. I mean, everyone asked me uh, when I started if I, they could set me up with their granddaughters. It was that type of like old Jewish organization. But, but I had a trial by fire. You know, I started in 
people were unwilling to accept change, but the change was necessary. I made an enormous amount of incredible changes, was about to have everything work, and then Bernie Madoff happened. We lost $14 million, were sued overnight, and I spent nine years rebuilding a charity in the ashes of Madoff, in the ashes of Jewish philanthropy being pretty gutted. And that's where that was the real epiphany, right? Always going back to people. I like I met your family through family friends. And I, I said to your sister, I don't want your help with my charity. I consider you guys family. So I never once pitched you by running this charity to support Israeli arts and culture. So I wanted to have a line. But what I also knew was that any quote, rich, powerful Jewish philanthropist I met, I had a less than 10% chance of an intro made by them being useful for me. I started to have all of my network that I built just from living in New York that was diverse. Indian entrepreneurs, Black VCs, Mormon family office friends, when they would say, I love David, he's like a brother to me, or like, you know, and um, I really love his passion for supporting young artists, you should look at him. I had an 80% success rate from people not members of our tribe connecting me back in. And that's when I realized that diversity of network was actually the only way to build purposeful community. And when you made it tribal, you made it so homogenous, there was less innovation and it was much more of like a caste system. Everyone had their mark, they had their thing, they did what they did and there's nothing you could do to change it. No, I see how that could become an echo chamber. Echo chamber, but more than that, right? In the world of philanthropy, you know, because it's somebody's choice to do, everyone believes they're doing enough. But I would say no philanthropist is doing enough for what philanthropy's role should be in this world, because look at the state of the world. It's not, it's not in a good place. It's not been in a good place. And so philanthropy is not solving those problems on their own. That's where, you know, the whole world that, you know, I jumped into, which I know you're deep into, of impact investing also is part of it. But in the end, like what I think actually changes the world is this idea of purposeful community rising above all of it. And so that's the passion that came out of the travails of Jewish fundraising and Bernie Madoff. It came out of being in a world where I literally have hundreds of friends who love the fact I'm a composer and they've never once listened to my music. They love the idea of it. That's enough. And so I got rid of my ego about that being something that bothered me. Because if I could inspire people, then at some point change would happen. And at some point in the, my, my life, that'll be creative. In some case, that'll be business. In some cases, it'll be a combination of both. And that's what orchestrated connecting eventually became, was the brand that really solidified both in one because I can get away with calling things orchestrated because I literally can orchestrate and write a symphony. Yeah, no, I, I love the name and how it stems from that. And I love what you said about purposeful communities and, and how that's how things really get done. I mean, like you mentioned, you're the name of the podcast, People Are the Answer. I think people are how things get done and get changed. And, you know, they, they work together well because the, all of these people creating change need communities. They need help. No one does it on their own. It's true, but, you know, and this is, you know, a question I'd throw back to you, which is, you know, where does relationship trust play in to who you choose for your podcast, who you invest with, who you give to, who you socialize with, right? Especially as like being a young dad now, like relationship trust for me is really what people need. 
Because if we don't have time and we all have lots of desires, how do we align more of the actual needs? And so, you know, like, you know, where has trust come into your purpose, even just with this podcast? I mean, I think just in my business career uh, over the years, I've learned how just unimaginably important that aspect is the relational trust. Um, You know, if I feel, if I trust someone then I'm willing to, like you, I think willing to connect them with, with anyone that I think can be helpful to their cause. And, um, you know, I think it's pretty rare that someone betrays that trust. If they, if they do, then certainly, you know, not going to be trying to do them a lot of favors or anything going forward. But, um, you know, in terms of the podcast, I would say initially it was, that was a hundred percent it. Like I was only bringing on people that like, I did have that relation relational trust with, but, um, you know, now I would say that occasionally people that I trust will send me someone that, Hey, I really think their story is worth telling. Um, and I'll learn about them and, and decide. And, um, that's, that's been the case a handful of times. I, I'd like to like sort of veer back to where it was mostly my people, but um, I, it pro- maybe it would be too homogenous uh, in that case, although I do try to keep a diverse community. You know, what I'd say is it always depends on what you ask for. And when you can ask for content of character rather than profile, that's really how I found people build diverse communities. You know, what, one of the prides of the orchestrated community that I've built is you and I are minorities as white men in this network of 1,200 people. Not every event can be controlled that way because it's come for anyone in it. But I have purposely said to women and people of color in my network, why are you recommending white men into this network? And they'll go, oh, well, so-and-so is fantastic. I was like, that's great. Who else looks like you? And I've done it really consciously with the still focus on content of character, which, you know, I, I know you read my website, not everyone does action oriented, natural giver that I or somebody else would leave my children with. That is my code for the people I want to connect with in life. It doesn't say anything about race, religion, creed, or, or age or anything, but it does say very clearly, you better value this person above your own uh, sense of self, because that's the type of person I think is purposeful that I want to support in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you've mentioned that to me before. I've I've certainly read read your materials, and uh, I really love that sort of explanation that you give in terms of how you judge their character, and uh, especially having kids now. The whole like I'd leave my kids with them is is very powerful because that's a question that you can usually answer, you know, relatively simply about someone. It it is, but the psychology, right? So like prior to forming or sort of connecting with this code, I had really important ones, right? Like could I be in an elevator with somebody for four hours and still like them? Like if you showed up at my door and said, my wife and I need your car and your car seats, like, would I give you my car? Like I found that every version of this, would I cook with you? Um, nothing translated across cultures and ages, but that one thing, do you want to stake your reputation in my world and network that you would leave my kids with somebody you'd vet for me that I've never met? Again, for a short time, not for weeks. Um, no one in my network has referred more than five or six people in, with a few exceptions of absolute major super connectors. And that's been the success in the filtering. If you're, if you're meeting everyone's A-game of integrity, then the curiosity that comes from that trust, going back to trust, 
that's the real psychology of this. How do you get down to not just people being the answer, but the right people in the right circumstance with the right trust to actually open up about what they need, as opposed to be open for what people want from them. And that difference is is how I believe society moves forward much more purposely. Yeah, that's, it's a beautiful standard. And, you know, honestly, for me, I've been incredibly hesitant to bring people in because I want to make sure they meet that standard. And I, I certainly have a, a couple people in mind that I think, think do that I've, you know, been considering and uh, that I'll, you know, likely connect with you at some point. But um, I, I think that level of standard is really, really important to the quality of the network, as you know. I know it well because I've only had five bad intros in seven years. And for somebody who runs community gets introduced to people, like that's crazy exceptional. But I believe that communities need risk, not just reward, not just, you know, who do you, who sounds like you want to join? My, my community is no membership fee. You're not allowed to sponsor an event. Like it is purposeful in that way too. I mean, I describe it jokingly as a stupid business, but it is because it, it's intended to be a community that sits above all others because it's the people who walk into any room and know the room and they're, therefore they're actually alone. So if you're going to take people who are incredibly busy, you included, and say, would you value your time with me? Then it better be the exact most incredible group of people they've ever met every time. Or there's plenty of other things to go to, plenty of other people to take an intro from. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And um, I do, I, I want to dig in more uh, to Orchestrated Connecting, but... Briefly, I just wanted to touch back on sort of the path that got you there. You mentioned your work with America Israel Cultural Foundation um, and sort of the economic upheaval that resulted there. Uh, you know, what led you to leave that role for uh, Luna Clips Media? So <clears throat> when you stay at something too long, you feel stuck. When you're an institution there, even if you're in delivering with value, the standards get higher and higher. And it was time to, for me to leave well before I was able to. Um, I love the work. Some of the artists that I help support are still some of my closest friends. And, and what I was able to see in this world of arts and culture, because this is a young talent funder, in the next 10 to 20 years, everyone will go, oh, who's that person? And I'll go, I knew them when they were 20 at Juilliard. I remember their first film that, you know, they were acting in Tribeca. Now they're a Hollywood star. Like, I loved that work. I really did. And my mom ran an after-school arts program, like elevating artists. And my dad, you know, being a director where some of his actors became like incredible theater or film stars. Like, I thought it was my calling. And then the world of Nexus as a community, Nexus Global, um, the world of impact, the world of family office, they all just became more and more compelling because I was, you know, I'm not a wealth holder but I'm trusted by thousands. And the same way that in my network of connectors, I was disgusted by me for not realizing the strength of connection I had with others wasn't conveyed to them. I realized that I wanted to do something bigger because I wanted to have a larger impact than the impact I was having at the time. And so I joined a board through the other person in my life, right? We go back to Doris, to my uh, adopted grandmother in New York, Abby, who introduced me to Vera that launched me into that. Um, and that's how I met a friend of mine named Josh Tannenbaum, who nominated me to Nexus, which is, again, part of the reason we know each other. 
because I ran into your sister in an event. I was like, how do you know Dave Resnick? And she's like, oh, well, my brother Jonathan. I was like, oh, well, he's my best friend from college. We were two of nine Davids in an economics course, and we were musicians, and we looked the same. And she's like, you do look the same. And, like, you guys became family friends in about four seconds. Um, So my brother had a... um, really amazing friend, successful entrepreneur founder named Brani Rajakumar. And Brani was uh, three years younger than me, came to New York, went through Dream Adventures in Carnegie Mellon, sold his first EdTech startup to K-12, is really a pioneer in the future of work now. And Brani once said, you know, you need to meet a charity that I, that I uh, built, now called what was called New York Ties. And in there, I met my friend Jamie, who brought me into the Arthur Miller Foundation. And this is a foundation I now chair, bringing theater education, the systemization with the DOE back to New York City public schools than others. And at an event, I met um, Paul Dalio and Christina Dalio, Ray Dalio's second oldest son. We hit it off because that week um, was one of those weeks as a parent that you you probably are used to now, where for whatever reason, when daylight savings times happens and you think your kids are supposed to sleep later, they wake up earlier. It makes no sense, but like, oh, like six o'clock is going to be seven o'clock. Why at three o'clock are my children up? And Paul and Christina were rushing out because they had to wake up early, especially Christina with the kids. And I knew being the the morning shift for my family all the time, I was going to wake up early. So we were leaving MoMA. We hit it off. We became friends. And at at their kid's birthday party, I met Ray Dalio and we had a really intense, amazing conversation about China, where I had gone as a kid before Tiananmen Square, when my dad was invited to teach in a few major cities there. Um, and then a year later, they brought me on to work on a project um, just to connect around interfaith in particular, where I had a network because of my work with Israel and cultural, global sort of um, arts collaboration. And a few months later, they they asked me if I wanted to build a company with them, incubate a film company that we eventually called Luna Clips, with a focus on areas I also cared about in addition to arts, climate change, social justice, and mental health. And then I, so I left the foundation I've been running for 15 years to jump in with them in a family office, but to build a new intentionally focused film company, which is what I did right before COVID hit. Yeah. I mean, I certainly love that concept. It's something, you know, I, I try to do as well in some of my work, create uh, intentionally focused film, among other things. And uh, then COVID hit and, you know, what what was what happened? What was the next move? Well, as we both know, if you're trying to work in Hollywood and Hollywood can't film and then Hollywood dies, very hard to build anything in film during that time. It was hard to do anything in most areas. Um but the industry really just shut down and then it became a backlog. Um, you know, I remember, you know, still like because of the network that I built and this actually built for me, the business model I have now for my advisory firm every six months. I mean, there was a, you know, a regular calls with Ray, you know, weekly, this was his son. Like he cares deeply about his kids and what they do and really invest time in them, like time, not just the money, like the time, one of the most dedicated active dads this way I've seen. Um, not an icon who then has staff do everything. Like he was hands-on and it was impressive. And so every six months I had to show a report, not just on 
the theories around the company, what we were doing creatively, but the type of people that I've met to advance the theories or triangulate those theories. And by 18 months in, I had 388 introductions into family offices and film to develop a theory of change around commercial media and impact. And we were all set to go for another evolution um, as COVID was, was starting to change a little bit. Unfortunately, Ray and Barbara lost their oldest son. My friend Paul lost his, his older brother in a really tragic car accident. And after a few weeks of grieving, they came to me really, really consciously and intimately and said that we're not ready to build this, not with, not with where we are. Um, and so I realized I had to set out on my own. And so I, I didn't think I had enough street cred to stay in as a film and running a film company that had not yet done films. It didn't feel authentic. Um, but that process, which is what I'd done in my arts charity and in the network I've run, became my entire life now where my theory around how to connect, the authenticity of it, the breadth of it, I now built my own business to build ecosystems of relationships so that everything is an opt-in, everything is purposeful. It's not just, oh, this person has a, is a VC firm that invests in X, I'm gonna pitch them. I ask with consent whether this is something that they wanna do, what are they looking for? And 80% of my world is still giving 20% is asking for people who work with me or what I need. And it, it's a, it's became a healthy balance that came out of a world where I was endlessly trying to raise money to keep my job with a nonprofit. And then I was trying to do what's right for an incredible visionary set of filmmakers that were just thwarted by COVID um, from where they were going to go. And so, you know, again, it's been a, it's been a journey where I think you can look at life in two ways. You can look at the crap version of it. I got a big job and Bernie Madoff gutted it and made my life miserable for years. And I tried to find a way out and finally I found it and I lost that job and now here I am. Or you can look at it the way that I really do see it, which is I was always doing the thing I was supposed to do. I just didn't have the courage as an entrepreneur to do it until I figured out that I'm literally gonna quote your podcast now, people are the answer. That was my currency but I had to find a way to turn it into something people valued that didn't make me feel like I was devaluing you or other people by asking for things you might want to look at. It just needed the transparency of that and the purpose behind it. And really the relationship trust built first, which is how I approach every conversation. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, you've been focusing on orchestrated connecting full time. I know that you've sort of uh, created a variety of, areas involved in it, you know, from a sustainability perspective, if I can ask, you know, how you talked about it sort of being free for your members, how do you sustain yourself? So relationship value is the most unvalued currency on the planet. I don't believe that any politician got elected without relationships. Anyone in M&A ask any person who's ever done a deal how they find out about a company? Somebody introduced them. Every venture thing, every raise somebody's done as a startup founder, every charity ask, it's an introduction from somebody else. So I believe that what we put our time and our money into are relationships. And I realized that I could not sustain myself, just to be honest, sustain my kids. If people wanted that value for free, 
with the with the promise, even with integrity, oh, they'll cut me in later. In some cases, it's not legal, right? Like you make an intern with somebody and they raise capital. I'm not SEC regulated. Like I don't, I would, I can't even take the money. And I don't want to be known as somebody who pitches my friends to invest and makes a cut of something. Like that's what I have you have. Like I have like, I don't know, 170 or so billionaires in my network who are my friends. Like how many do you think I'll have in two years if they're suddenly finding out about me cutting deals to get access to them? Like it's not going to happen. And so I, I stepped out of this advisor role with the Dahlias and I wrote a huge amount of my network and I said, if any of you are willing to take a 20 minute slot, I want you to tell me what you think I actually do because I don't know. And everyone said the exact same thing. I had 140 calls in five weeks. Um, they said the same thing. You listen to what we're saying and you come up with a strategy that actually makes sense that feels like we could do it. And then you go to somebody that I never thought we could get to who's an expert and go like, Jeff, like there's something in cannabis and real estate related to cryptocurrency that's going to be turned into a Hollywood film. Could you look at it? And you'd go, that's everything I do. That's pretty cool. But like, I'd only ask you. I haven't found that thing yet. If somebody has it who's listening, like send it your way and like give me some credit for it. Um, but it's only, it has to be right. And so like what I have this ability to do is to synthesize how people are pitching themselves, re-come up with strategies, and then go to people that are experts and go, hey, I need your time. And everyone says yes. And then once I've gotten that theory right of how relationships can be built, the model is it's retainer, retainer plus equity, never an upside. So people are de-risking me by hiring me for usually three to six months stints at a time. Um, but I'm de-risking them because there's no upside. If, if, if my connections result in somebody taking a board seat in a company that's about to do a series A or B, then like, good for them. That was my job was to find the right parallels, not to do anything I'm not allowed to do. And so what, what came about was this idea that that was the value. And I had to ask for it. I had to put my foot down and say, no, like I can't just make an intro and like get be part of the carry later on. Like, I don't have those type of means. I'm a, my, my dad's a professor from a small town in Florida. Like my family's going to, my family's going to retire decently. That's it. So how do you ask for that value in a way that's authentic? How are you transparent in it? And in, in the end, it's how to make the connector economy actually an economy is what I believe I'm helping spearhead because I'm not, I no longer will accept people who want to work through me or, or who or want to work with me only to overcapitalize in my network. I want that. I want that. I want the brand. I want the authenticity for people to go, oh, no, I hired David to build an ecosystem of relationships. What came from it was a great ROI for me, but I wanted warm, trusted relationships that are part of my ecosystem now, my portfolio of people, not just opportunistic because I'm on fun too. Yeah. No, it's, it's really, really interesting stuff. I mean, some of these issues in terms of like, what do I do? And, you know, what, what, how can I make money off of it are issues that, you know, I've thought about a lot for myself and I feel, um, you know, kindred spirits in terms of 
the value in bringing people together and harvesting relationships. And, you know, I'm certainly not trying to make this episode about me, but just, it certainly relates. You know, I think I've, over the years, I've done a lot of favors for a lot of people. And sometimes that turns into something and sometimes it doesn't. So I'm certainly trying to determine the best ways to uh, monetize my skill set for, you know, sustainable growth. So, I mean, I know you said you don't want to make it about you, but I'm going to dig in anyway, because this is also part of my theory and like what I'm writing a book on and like what I call my mantra. Um, people who are givers like you and I are really happy if we give and give and give. But at some point, something happens in our lives that necessitates our needs above somebody else's. And that's often when people who, have, who are truly givers and connectors, the crickets come out. And I've seen this now over 1,200 times with people I've interviewed who have now joined the network. No exceptions. Everyone that I have has, and forgive me if you can't curse on this podcast, their shit story. Like, everyone has the shit story. Said it twice. There we go. Better ratings now, right? Um, because what we think is if we give out to this world, it will come back to us. And I unfortunately believe that's a fallacy. It's, it's, it's not the logic. If you give and ask for the value of what you were giving, you would demonstrate the value of what you gave. Therefore you set a standard for what can come back because people don't think of relationships as the same standard as time or money. You invest in a charity I run, a million dollars, I really value our relationship because you put your money there. You spend an hour and a half interviewing me for this podcast and join my events and take every intro I ask of you, like, I value you for that. But those are transactional in some way, with our time or with our money. The things that are relational, what happens is, what happens when you give too much? And how to ask for that to be valued, right? Which is the point you made is part of my passion. It's like, if anyone's listening to this, like that, that's the reason to do this, to make relationship value value for you to be able to say, I have an expertise in real estate. Look what I did in real estate for myself. I had the means to start it, but that doesn't mean I was going to be successful in it and have innovation and theory in it. Look what I did in the, in the world of cannabis early on before other people said, oh, this is a field we should maybe do. And this is not just that I don't know if people are seeing your green screen or something behind you that's more beautiful other than me and like my big plant in my room where it's quietest for this podcast. But like you have an expertise in these fields. You also have. So how does that translate into your value? What I'd say is the mistake you've made and everyone's made is you've accepted that people are really nice and great. And when they ask for that value from you, you didn't ask for it to be valued back. And that's the difference in what my, I call this orchestrated connecting methodology. Ask for that value. It doesn't have to be transactional, but it needs to be clear. Like, hey, like, Jeff, I'm gonna put you in touch with this um, a friend's family office. They need, they need a lot of advice on how they're structured. And this is a real one, actually come into you and your, your sister and your brother at some point later this year when my friends are ready. They have a peculiar circumstance that really needs your insight that is personal based on the loss in your family, which I won't get into here. It is um, tribal based on the focus on Tika Olam 
and and Israel and the rest. And more than that, it's about how to build a positive sibling dynamic in a world where you have to all agree to make something happen. Like when does siblings come together and agree? And so like your guys' structure, I, I find admirable. And so when I make that intro, I'm asking my friends to value it, but I'm also asking you guys to value it because there's something more than spending the time because you guys are family friends of mine and so are this, this family. I want you to ask for that value. It doesn't mean to cut you in on their deals or their structure or pay you. It's like, I want you to come up with the intention that like, I'm giving my insight and my value to help with purpose. So at some point, whether I come back or somebody through my network comes back that you should talk to, meaning this other family, I just want you to value it the way that I'm valuing David's connection to give you that value. And so again, this is a specific example. You might cut this out because it's way too personal for this podcast, but if you don't, because I'm not naming names, um, the way it's framed is essential. The way it's leveraged and asked is essential. But more than that, the fact that you have to be unapologetic, that this is a value, and for me, a value above all other values. If you ask for that right, with the right humility in what you're doing, you never run into those issues again, because people self-filter out who are not going to be of that integrity, and you can read it. And, and, and people who are used to being asked for things, even as they're giving naturally, you can read into it because those with the right intention don't just go, of course, the first question back when you say, this is a value, I'd love to make these intros. Their first question back is, well, what can I do for you? If it's instinctual back, that's the person you help. If not, you're helping people who might need it, but don't expect something in return and don't expect... Uh, a consultancy, an advisory, a deal, a positioning, and an invite to the table, because they're not going to. That's not their intention. They're fulfilling their wants and their desires, not their needs. Because if you're filling, fulfilling somebody's needs, then when you ask for the value, the instant response is back in terms of generosity. No, that's a, it's a good way to put it. Good way to think about it. I want to dig in more on that offline with you in terms of the whole structure and stuff that honestly, I've wanted to, to dig in deeper with you. Uh, I've thought about it a lot lately, so, uh, it's glad, glad that it's coming up here for sure. So, you know, I launched that business, right. Get back to the story. I, we emerged from COVID, right. It's still there. Two of my friends got sick last week. One call this morning got canceled because of it. So it ain't over but it's relegated. And I was suddenly sitting on a fact that my network was no longer, do you live in New York? Do you come through New York? Or are you my friend I met at some point when you were in New York? And my network was everywhere. And I had concentrations in Boston, DC, Austin, Miami, LA. I mean, like a mild amount in Denver, but like enough if I came, like you'd meet people you'd never met. And I realized I had to correct that. I had to write a book. I had to build a startup and I had to really take the reins of something that so far I found no competition in what I'm doing, which is running a community of connectors. I want the competition, but more than that, like I, I'm working to, towards, and this is where like, this is where I have struggles, right? I don't have the time or the means to do everything I need for what I believe can help people in the world. And I wasn't asking, even being an expert in this correctly for what I need yet. And I think we all find 
being in the situation of even if we have success to some degree, if you don't ask right, people aren't going to understand how they can actually help. And so that's actually where I am, like leading up, like I'm, I'm in this point where like, I'm writing a book on relationship value and purposeful community. And eventually I'm going to need to find the people who can call their agents or publishers and go like, this is it. Like David's expertise in this taught me and I run a community. Um, I'm going to build a startup around this. And because of the data privacy, I need to raise several thousand dollars to make sure it works right. But I have to get people to believe in me because I've never built a startup. They have to understand that value or they have to have that conveyed by somebody in my network who pitches their friend to fund it. And until a couple months ago, I couldn't even say those things in the right sequence for people to understand how I could be helped. And I'm considered a master connector helping them frame it. So we all make these mistakes this way because good enough isn't what we need. And I'm at a point now where it's not an inflection point, it's a growth point where either it's gonna work really, really well, or I don't know. And that's the scary part. Yeah. It's part of, part of that risk that you, you know, started taking at a young age and um, certainly still an element of that. But uh, I mean, I think everybody that's come into contact with your work has been enriched by it. So I expect that to continue and excited to see what you build with that. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. So, you know, one thing I, I love that you said about orchestrated connecting, at least um, you've said in the past, is, you know, make your life more like a symphony. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious to dig into that a little bit and also you, just how you define a super connector. Sure. So let me take the easy one first, which is how you define a super connector. A super connector to me is somebody who has relationship EQ. They understand what drives people and what makes them purposeful. And as they connect, they immediately pattern match and recognize where people in their network should be connected to others that they are talking to in two or three different areas, geographies, or industries. If the only thing I ever do is connect people in cannabis to people in cannabis. Like I'm not a super connector. I'm an, I'm a connector. A super connector has a more worldly view and therefore they've embraced what I believe is what makes super connectors unique, which is diversity of network, whether they've done it purposely or not. So that's a super connector. And the difference between a super connector and any other variation is they say what they're going to do. If they're going to make the intro, the intro happens. Somebody's opted in, not, oh, you should meet Mary next year. Oh, did I ever connect you with Mary? And then a year later, you're like, I met Mary on my own. You don't have any part of this. Like you didn't connect. Like you have to actually take the action. That is a big difference because a lot of people are collectors. Many other variations, they don't actually do it. You ask anyone or anyone listening who knows me, if I've made an intro for somebody who's in my network, the answer is yes. At an event, or directly every single person. Otherwise I'm a hypocrite. So that's the easy one. Making your like life a symphony, two parts of this. One, I hate the pretension that comes with classical music. The thought you have to know music to appreciate it is just bullshit. 
this idea and this is what comes from very smart people that you can only appreciate it with the right training and the right sophistication belies the fact that the most successful classical pieces, their melodies were based on folk music of the time. It's always been a combination. And so classical music has done itself such a disservice despite its dominance in commercials and film and television. Necessary scores for everything, right? You think about any major piece of music that's a film score, more instantly recognizable than any other piece by every generation, right? You just know it, right? Lord of the Rings theme, like eight notes in, you're like, oh my God, I'm back with Frodo. Like you just, you're there. So the idea of those melodies being each of our individual resonances, we are each a melody. And behind us, the chords, because music is as simple as a melody and harmony. Everyone has that. You have the quick the people around you, you have what you do. And so the idea of making life a symphony is what I go back to with purposeful community. And so uh, a symphony as, is as simple as you take a melody and harmonies and you separate it out into winds, string, brass, percussion, piano. Uh, Sati used a typewriter, other people use electronics, but basically it's a bunch of different individual voices most of whom can only play one, two, or maybe three notes at the same time. And collectively, they make something greater than themselves. And so when you're making your life a symphony, you are actually understanding that the only way to amplify your voice is to amplify others at the same time. And this is where the ego has to get out of it. I learned this in fundraising. I learned this with, you know, I'd go to somebody are you Jewish? Do you want to support Israel, arts and culture, Israel's image, all these things that I was really eloquent and not being now because it's, it's, you know, no longer paid to do it. And, um, but I believed in it, really still do. And then they tell me their vision and it wouldn't be that. And if I could find ways to amplify their vision with mine, we both succeeded. Sometimes they became a philanthropist in my network. Other times they became a friend and a referral source. Other times I simply helped them. But all of those gave me greater resonance to keep with the musical terms. But the idea of making your life a symphony is this idea that collectively we are greater than what each of us want or desire. And if we address our needs collectively, we can actually achieve something that is symphonic, which soars above what one individual voice with a bunch of backup chords or singers have. And when you do that purposely in community, the thing that makes a symphony so majestic is the fact that it's so big and it's so diverse and it's so beautiful. And for anyone who's never listened to one, my favorite is Brahms' Third Symphony, which was based on folk songs. I did my master's thesis on it. It's incredible me me uh, melodies. There's lots of play and variation. And by the time you get to the third movement, you're in this micro world. And then the fourth movement is such a bombastic piece. Your head is no longer filled with anything but this. And you could hate classical music and give Brahms 30 minutes and your life will be changed in terms of what symphonic music can mean. Because when that many different voices all come together that you cannot follow, you cannot be distracted.
And again, you can hear it live or like get off your phone and just listen with headphones and close your eyes. You can't be like on a computer and listening to this podcast and putting it on an iTunes. Like you got to make it like purposeful. But what I can say is that when people do that, when you're in a room, when you're in a conference, when you're with a group, whatever it is, and you say, we have a common purpose and everyone has a different variation of that, but there's a commonality when that happens, right? It's incredible what change happens in this world because of it. And my passion is to connect those change makers to each other. That's what orchestrated connecting is above all else. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I, I can totally see that vision. It's great how, you know, your music experience plays into that. Um, and I know I'm sort of hopping around, but that does make me want to go back a little bit to music. You know, we've it's come up here that you're, you know, composer, collaborative artist, you know, but I don't think the depth at which you're engaged in music has necessarily come through. I mean, you've been prolific. You have, uh, I think, 11 albums. Is that right? So, yes, but only seven recorded because I've not uh, been able to do enough Kickstarter or Indiegogos to raise the money for the rest. Um, but, yeah, I've written over 200 pieces of music, a lot of it with dance and ballet. Um, just had one premiere as a ballet earlier in, in February this year, 2023, that I released as, a C, as an album. You can't say CD because CDs don't exist anymore. And in, in my family, when I used to print CDs to then send to radio stations, all the leftover ones we called coasters because they make great coasters. <laughs> Just sad. Um, you know, I, I quit piano. I got back in. Nirvana brought me back in. There was a Simpsons episode where everyone was protesting Montgomery Burns power plant and they played the sixties protest song, classical gas. And I just loved it. And I loved parts of it. And then I made my own. And next thing I knew I was improvising and writing. So I started improvisational piano in college. I got in, I wrote string quartets, which is my next, um, my next project. Shameless plug. I'm going to do a, a Kickstarter campaign to raise about 25,000 to record it. Um, I've written two string quartets and one single movement quartet. Um, that I want to record, all of which are about um, the mind, time, and love. Sort of those are the themes of them. Uh, but I've kept composing. It's not a hobby. It's not a career. It's in between. Um, my music gets licensed for Discovery Channel and a, a couple other things, you know, and I can make in the world of streaming and residual rights, you know, anywhere between 17 and $70 a quarter. It's not something that you can monetize the same way, but it's part of who I am. It's, it's, my, it's my therapist. It's, it's the way that I believe that I can connect with people. And, I, and I'm going to be getting back into reg, regular improvisations and sharing this. Um, not because I think everyone needs to listen to me, but because I've always thought of myself um, I used to say this before cannabis was popular, so it had a different connotation as a gateway drug into the arts for other people, because I'm not in the arts, even though I'm also in the arts. I don't think like a creative. I have both left and right brain. And I've always thought of my music as something that people can find peace and purpose in. And if I can write that melody and give somebody peace and purpose, and this has happened many times in my life now with my music, um, it's just for them, but if it grounds you, if it gives you solace, and then it helps motivate you to do something more, 
now that you've sat with your thoughts and want to be active, that's what drives me with it. And I've been lucky to have enough people support me and my own abilities to make this happen that I've had a career now for over 20 years in a field where most people get celebrated because they didn't give up. Yeah. It's definitely a different take on that, that music career. I think it's, it's really fascinating and it's awesome how much you've been able to accomplish as sort of doing it on the side. You know, I just say to that, yes, it's, it's hard. You squeeze it in with children, you squeeze it in even more. Um, but I can't stop. I'm always looking for somebody to go, I love your music. How can I help it get out there? Or what would it take to produce your next CD? And like, I never ask for that. I always look for it. Um, but it's not, it's not who I was really supposed to be. It informs who I was supposed to be. And that was somebody who ideally, um, gives people this idea in terms of community that the way that we view relationships is the same way that when two people who love the same piece of my music connect with each other, I've given them something that gets deep enough down that the connection is more than authentic or real. It's at a depth where they feel that they've been heard, which is what I think we all look to actually have in our lives, like to be heard, not recognized, not celebrated like we want to be understood we want to, people want to understand our why and if somebody wants to understand my why like listen to the music don't listen to me talk well hopefully everybody listening here will will go check out your music after they're done we can help yeah so back into your orchestrated work you know we you're building this incredible network and you've now you know created this uh, I don't know if you, would you call it a consulting firm and, uh, for orchestrated opportunities? Yeah, I say impact advisory just because consulting has a different negative connotation, but it's all the same. You try to be smart with what you do to leverage somebody when you're not at the core of their business, but you're an amplifier of it. Right. And, you know, how, when did you start that? How's it going? You know, if you're open to sharing, you know, how many clients you have, I'm sure we're curious. Sure. So... I've not yet had to seek out a client in three years. My executive coach says I should rest on my laurels for that and be happy, but like I'm not because I'm, according to certain tests, a hyperachiever and nothing's ever good enough. So that's just me for anyone who knows me in my life. Um, the work has been in mental health, health and wellness, climate change, circular economy, um, philanthropy, art, AI, social justice, like investing in women. Everything's had a purpose. I've worked with some incredible human beings, family offices, startups, B Corps, um, couple founders. And the process is the same in every one. I believe in them. I believe that I can help leverage and expand what they do. Currently, I have 10 clients as of July 26, 2023. So we'll see whenever this comes out, if I have more or less when my business is tanked by them. Um, but the work for me, it goes back to one thing, which is I not just have to believe in what people are doing, I have to believe in the people behind it. I really have to understand that like I am making my reputation aligned with theirs. And so three years in, like I figured out the models in this economy. Not everyone wants to pay what I think I deserve, but like everyone has hired me, not just asked me for favors. And, you know, 
every project I do gains me more depth. Like I work with an incredible family office in mental health. And all of a sudden I had access to over a hundred different mental health funders and family offices, which have stayed in my network post project. And the same in climate, the same in impact media. And as I gain that depth, because I'm connecting connectors to connectors and how I build this ecosystem, it, it just gives me a much easier purpose every time I jump back in to accelerate change and get people where they need to be. How do you find that line where you go from doing someone, you know, a favor to being, you know, on board uh, as, you know, a paid relationship? In that mantra I mentioned, which I'll resend to you, and honestly, anyone who's listening who says, send the mantra to me, they can just ping me. My email's on my website. My whole life is out there. You can even Google me and find my cell phone and text me, but you got to credit having listened to this entire podcast and thank Jeff before I'll respond. Um, it's pretty simple, right? When we first met, I asked you what you needed, and I offered about three intros into cannabis and crypto early on. And then one in film a little bit later as you really got into that as a creative yourself. If you came back to me and you asked me to connect you to all of the Hollywood network that I built with uh, Luna Clips, if you came back and you said, listen, like I'm doing a new cannabis fund, like I want to meet other family offices invested in this, like, you know, can you build that for me? Like I'd go, well, this is where I built my work. Like there's a difference of you coming to me literally tomorrow and being like, Oh, can you come to this person in film? I'd be like, okay, sure. Like you're my friend. You guys are family. It's different if you ask for more, but I, but you never would. And so when I don't have that relationship, I just literally draw the line. And I was like, listen, I can't build you an ecosystem for free. That's something that you would never ask of somebody for you. So if you want the ecosystem and the strategy and you trust me to do it and you've been vetted to me, this is how I work. And I just keep it clear. The expectations I keep clear. And every one of the people I've worked with so far has stayed in my network and would hire me back for another project, which is also something I've learned is really rare in building a business. Um, but I'm, I'm honest. If, if like I'm pinging a bunch of people and I'm not getting the response, I go, do you still want to work with me? Like I'm not getting the response. I don't go 10 more people who you don't, you aren't hearing about. Maybe you'll get to them. Like, I'm honest about it because I, I approach life that way. I want honesty back. Um, and that's, that's how I live. I don't live a perfect life. I'm not a perfect person. But if you're going to work with me, like, you're going to know that, like, I can't do any calls on Friday and I'm not working for you because I'm taking my dad to see his brother for the first time in seven years in person. And if you really insist on a call, you're not somebody I want to meet or work with anymore. Like, I'm going to put it out there. I'll do all the work on Saturday or Sunday you need. But like, I need to have balance. And we don't because we think that that work and life are separate. And I don't know whoever created that just just destroyed this idea of balance because they're all one person. Yeah, I'm on the same page on that front. And certainly family and things like that always always come first. Um, I certainly appreciate that about you as well as the transparency and um, you know, over these years, building your network, you know, working with so many different people, you've worked on a lot of different causes. Has there been a particular moment where it just really struck you how much you affected change, you know, in someone's life or in an issue? Yeah. None of these are examples I can talk about with names because none of these are things that 
I take pride in, but I take pride because what what it did was something helping helping somebody in need. I didn't say that well, but I'm and I'm being a little vague, but I'll just give you one example. I spoke at a pretty major like startup founders group last week. Ran an event, a really good friend brought me on. And at the end of it, she spent a few minutes talking about what I did for her. And to be honest, I forgot the extent to which I helped her life. Her dad got cancer. It was in another country. Happened to be a country I had a couple of medical connections in along with New York connections. And I called three friends. The second and third opinion they needed happened within a week. Some of those opinions, although it didn't save her father's life, the hope that she'd done everything she could was fulfilled by friends answering the call for me. I could give thousands of those examples. It's like I'm trying right now, I've got to figure out how to raise for my startup. And like, you know, one of my advisors is one of my best friends who I met through my daughter's like, you got to show all the case studies of like what's happening in this network. And I was like, I know, and I can, like, I'm going to do it. But like, you can't monetize that. Like you can't monetize it. On the other hand, having access to major life sciences investors, major hospital chains in a multinational world of life sciences and biopharma and pharmaceutical investors is a major asset people want. And I have that. And I'm not in those industries in any way, except for I take Tylenol when I have a headache. And I'll tell you, um, Turning that around into anecdotes that are sellable is antithetical to why I did it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I like like we've mentioned, you know, I think we both like helping people, and for me, it's it's not about going to tell somebody about it. And so, the idea of having to do that in order to, you know, take something to the next level is is tough. It is, but this is where, all right, this will be like shameless plug for my startup that I want everyone listening to go. How can we invest in David to do this? Because I'm going to start asking. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to everyone that I know to go, do you believe in the networking community I built? And the difference of how I realized I framed this, so I'll try this out on you, not to pitch you now on your podcast, because you just edit it out and be like, nope. Um, but the, but it was this idea that it's not about selling the power of the network. It's, a t- it's about selling all the missed opportunities. And then if I can build a startup that maximizes the potential of this network around impact, around philanthropy, around incredible deals and every SDG goal being met and all these things that come from what happens in this community. If I can figure out the community software that builds authenticity, that suggests relationships, that tracks them, that makes our lives easier and how we connect, if I can do it for the orchestrated network, it can work for TED, for Summit, for Davos, for Nexus, for every VC, every philanthropy to better understand the ecosystem around and connect authentically. And that's what I realized was the missing way that to pitch this, which was it's not about everything that I've done, which everyone could say, oh, well, my community's in this. I'm, I go back to what my buddies told me, which is really the point. What hasn't happened that needed to? Can you invest to help solve that? And so this is like, it's one of the biggest things I'm going to do. So I'm really, you know, 44 and a, a reluctant entrepreneur about to launch a startup. I don't fit the type. Right. Um, but the reason is I put the time in for most of my life into why this connectivity works at the highest scale. But I've done it in a way where everyone trusts me. 
And I didn't understand why until I realized I was helping them maximize opportunities they couldn't fill on their own and no one else did because no one else asked and then did it. And I'm not saying I'm the only one. I'm just saying I systematized it and that system could have great value. And that's part of what's next. Awesome. Well, uh, excited to see where things go with that and certainly hope to stay up to date and engaged with you on that. Um, and uh, now if you'd like, you can ask me a question. You know, I already snuck one in because I figured I was going to see if I could get you two and you only said one. And like the question you said not to ask is like, why do you do this podcast? But like, why would you have interesting guests on who ask you generic questions? So here's the question I'd ask, which I've been meaning to ask you for a while, which is now that you have two kids, which means your juggle is insane all the time. What changed in your priorities that you regret having to give up for now? at least until your younger one is five. I would say overall, you know, I really, I want to be around. And so I'm still trying to determine the balance between how do you be a great dad and a great business person and a great philanthropist? How do you have the time for all of those things? And so, you know, I'd say the thing that I've given up the most is travel probably. Um, I don't travel nearly as much as I did in the pre-COVID pre-kids days. Um, and you know, I, I establish the travel has been really helpful. I just, I try to be really pick and choose now more so than I did in the past because going somewhere, being in person with people can be incredibly impactful and transformational to what I'm doing. But you know, my n number one thing is, is now being there for my kids and, uh, missing as little as possible of their life. And I know my parents always were looking for that balance and, I think, you know, everybody's just trying to improve on what their parents did. And so I'm just, uh, you know, for better or worse, my dad was traveling a lot when I was young, you know, my siblings were a lot older than me and I was, my youth was very much in his peak growth, I would say in terms of his businesses. And, um, he did amazing, amazing things for me and was there, but he traveled a lot. So it's just something that weighs on me very heavily. And, uh, there's aspects of it that I miss, um, but I just try to be incredibly selective. And perhaps there's a point at which the kids are a little more self-sustaining where they have, you know, more of their own lives going on where it is a little bit less of a burden to be gone. But I also, even then, I don't want to miss too much of their lives. So, Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that. Honestly, I know it's something that is always a struggle and it's, and it's something that's really hard to figure out what you're missing by choosing not to miss your priority of family. Um, there's no easy answer because no parent I've ever met has had that answer down. Um, the ones that I would consider good ones. And the fact you're conscious of that, especially, you know, in, in the, you know, growing up as the youngest sibling with what your dad was, parents were able to achieve. Um, says a lot about what your value system is as a dad. So I, I just will go back. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a great question. And um, constantly figuring out life, how to balance things, where to spend my time, you know, as somebody that has a lot of passions and a lot of interests, it's, uh, it's always tough. And, you know, obviously having kids throws the largest wrench in the mix. And, um, you know, I hope that now my number one goal in life is to to give them a good life and be a good dad and be there for them as they grow into whoever it is they become and, you know, do what they want to do. And 
the work that I'm doing on the side, you know, for myself and ultimately for my family is now just a rung below that. I think it's the way it should always be. I know a lot of people in this world do not have that option. Those who just have to work and do not have the option from their employers to have that as the priority. So it's something you and I are both very privileged to have that choice with what we've done and families that let us get there. So I, I do want to like acknowledge that like that is something I live by too. The most incredible parents I met are the ones who do that despite not having the options you and I have. Um, but with that, the best example you can be for your kids is the person you want them to be now. And that every friend of mine, whatever social economic circumstance, the ones that had idols that then they live up to, it's never about surpassing them. It's about using them as the, as the, as the stepping stone to be a, a better parent and human being because of them. Yeah. No, I appreciate you including that. I mean, certainly feel for the people that, you know, just can't be home because they have to do what they have to do to take care of their family. And those are tough things to, to have to deal with. And, um, I wish everybody the best. Cause I think regardless of circumstance, it's never easy. It's not, I will tell you when I ran my own organization, I had lots of employees. I always made sure they knew they could make a doctor's appointment at any time. They didn't have to squeeze it in. If they had kids or they had family or anything was needed, like family and health always came first. And I think most people don't think of that because they think of their bottom line changing because of people not focused on growing what they need. And I just find it so hypocritical in this day and age when it's not that hard. Yeah. Certainly myself with employees that I have and have had, that's always been the case. Family's number one, you know, always take time for your health. You do what you need to do to make your life as good as it can be. And so that you can do what you need to do on the work side. Um, you know, my general philosophy has always been like, do whatever you want, as long as you get your shit done and you're where you need to be. Fair enough. So aside from family, if however you interpret this, if everything were to end tomorrow, what are you most grateful for or most proud of? You know, besides family, besides the help that I've given to others, besides my music, I've talked to my parents every single day. I don't ever want to live a life of regret. I don't want to live a life of regret of like not having talked to them at some point when given their age, you know, uh, life takes the best of them. I'm really proud of what I've been able to do to maintain a very positive growth focused relationship, especially with my folks. And not everyone has that. Not everyone has the option to have that. But that's the other thing that I'm most proud of. Because um, everything else is, is, everything else is window dressing. All the success people could have, all the accolades. Like, you know, I'm by far one of the least successful people you've had on your podcast for what I was see from all of this. But I learned from my dad to place my value in family. He was an active dad for me product of the second marriage. So it was, it was a little different for my older half siblings, a lot different actually. But my mom gave him happiness and solidarity to be himself and with me, he became that. And I became the product of both my parents in a way that was so positive that I am, I am literally successful because of what they taught me how to be. And sharing in that success would be, the, would be that answer. That's why I talked to them even a little bit. 
every single day. Yeah. I mean, what, what a beautiful answer. And I'm sure people, uh, when this is over, they're pausing right now and calling their parents if they're still around. Cause it certainly hit, hit home for me. Uh, makes me want to call my mom later and see how she's doing. But, uh, to also as a parent, to imagine my kids growing up and saying anything like that uh, is something you can only hope for. Um, so certainly uh, an answer that, that hits home, I'm sure, for a lot of people. I hope so. And, you know, everyone has different family situations. And God forbid I have somebody call their mom who, you know, isn't going to make them feel better about themselves. You know, there's a, there's a lot to work on with it. What I'm proud of is not the consistency of it. I'm the fact that I found a way to share my life with them as I grew up and still be myself. And that wasn't my journey when I left for college. It wasn't something I thought I'd understand when I became an executive. It wasn't something that I thought I'd be with when I live a life around wealth and celebrity and all of this. But like, how do you stay humble? You don't just forget or embrace your roots. You make it part of you. And that's what that brings back because my dad was somebody who's taught some of the most famous people in the world, you know, and he never cared. He just cared how they were as a student. So that's part of what I took this idea that like, it's not about everything you should be proud of having accomplished. It's really about for me, what my kids will be like with me, like I am with my parents, which is what you had spot on with, which is why it's important to me. Yeah. Certainly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I have this very macro question that I like to ask toward the end of each episode. If you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Oh, I love that question. I'm sure you get a whole bunch of incredible answers because there's so many things that I would want to change that I think, you know, would reverberate. Um, I wish that COVID had been a way for the world to come together in solidarity, not feel like we were torn apart from it. If I could snap my fingers and say to everyone, now isolation and mental health has been felt by 8 billion people on this planet, and we all experience loss in some way because of it. If that could be a collective calling for people to, of power to accept change, and people of no means to see the potential. It was the most humanizing experience we've had in over a hundred years and the world fucking wasted it. I agree. And it just, it just, it changed the future of work. It showed us what if we sit around and don't do certain things, what we can do for climate change like pretty quickly, like smog cleared from China. Like, oh, okay, that's possible. Like all these things are possible. I think we lost our humanity with it because the reverberations didn't change the fact that mental health is health. And we, we can all come together for a purpose more purposeful than our own selfishness. And the world squandered that politically, uh, economically, religiously, everything. And it was as simple as everyone's getting sick what can we do what do you need like it could have been that simple yeah i had a similar thought too around COVID. just 
what an opportunity it could have been to bring people together to highlight that we're all human, that we're in this together. I mean, we're all under this circumstance. Let's come together. And, you know, certain political figures just, I think, help to push the divisiveness even more. Um, the political aspects that were taken on among issues. Yeah, it's they did because, you know, the world's always been full of a power dynamic most people don't understand. And power is changing, but power hasn't really changed. To talk about the world's elite, to talk about the rest, like there's always been an elite. There's always been a power structure, a power structure and a hierarchy. Like that's always been there. We had a chance to what this amazing guy, Jeremy Hyman's and Henry Tim's talk about in their book, New Power. We had a chance to change the current of this. And it might still change, but we went pretty far ass backwards instead of getting there. That is the unfortunate truth and um, not the happiest way to end, but I have one last question, but it's been amazing having you. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening has been, I imagine, as invigorated as I have been from our conversation. Uh, how can people support you and your impact? The answer everyone cringes when they hear money, right? Um, what I really need. I built something I believe has the power to change the scope of all community impact and purpose. And it's because of the system and the value behind it. And I've really, really sucked the last two years of asking for the right thing. I don't need patrons. I don't need investors. I don't need co-visionaries. Um, I need the thing that I do for others, which is I need champions. I need people to see that the community I've built, if replicated, could change the way all communities connect and help me get a book, big book out for that and a TED talk and everything else. I need the technology to make it systematized at scale because the technology doesn't exist. I got to raise a bunch of money for this and I shouldn't run this startup. I should be a visionary and somebody who really knows how to run it should soar with it. And in the end, like what I need is the thing that I try not to leave my friends with all the day, which is wondering uh, when somebody's going to call to help them with what's next. That that creates a loneliness, even with me being so connected, that really is hard to deal with every day. And so if everyone who knows and loves me listens to this, because I published it on LinkedIn multiple times and sent emails about it, and our mutual friends support it and everything that every podcast needs, like, I don't need new people to come forward. I need people who listen to this because of your generosity to me and listen to this and told their friends about it who were the right people to go, oh my God, this is a selfless approach to community that is only about elevating people's lives who are less fortunate. Why has this been sitting around and not plugged into more of what the world needs to make the change happen? That's the thing that I need. It's not money. It's not the people, the passion, the purpose. Like I'm not doing this alone but I don't, I don't want to be the leader of it. I want to be a leader in a movement of it. And I think I'm going to get there, but it takes the right system, resources, and friends to make it possible. And I'm only starting to ask now. So if anyone's listening to here's that question, like it's time to make something bigger, not for Orchestrated Connecting or David Homan, 
it's time to celebrate the fact that relationship value makes the world work. And we've been squandering it by not asking for that value, you included, Jeff. Uh, but more than that, how many people listening to this podcast know the incredible work you do as a philanthropist, as an impact investor? How many people are not digging in, even if they're fans of yours or who love what you do or are friends with your, you know, their kids or friends with um, your kids? Like, why are we sitting on so much potential for change with visionary people and then just asking for what we need? That's why my ask isn't about me. I want that ask to be about no longer having those missed opportunities. Well, let's let's end on that note, and uh, I hope everyone listening is is able to support and get engaged because I think that it's the beginning of a beautiful future in terms of improving communities and how they operate. Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate not just the time, but the insight and the diligence that you've put into this, and the and the, the whole idea about where where you are focused is not just on celebrating people, but being able to really share and dialogue your insights with them. So I just want to express that gratitude, echo that back um, as somebody who's been a friend for a decade or more now, um, that I appreciate that trust to give you this platform and to spend the time. Absolutely. I appreciate your trust in joining and excited to, to share this with the world and uh, excited to keep our conversation going. Beautiful. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.